You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Easter Island is way more than just those big head dudes. Welcome, 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 friend. I'm TK, your tour guide to the past, and you are listening to For the Love of History, the podcast where we talk about world history, women's history, and weird history. I am so glad that you're here on this fine moment, whether it be day, night, or anything in between. Whether you're settling into your commute, doing some chores you've been putting off, or heading to dreamland, you are going to love our topic. Someone messaged me that they use for the love of history to help them fall asleep, and I was so honored, which got my little brain working. But more on that later. We'll talk about that in a minute because we've got to get to our topic. So today, we are going to dive into a mysterious topic, a heady (laughs) topic, if you will, and a world history topic for the ages. We're hopping into our time machines and traveling to Easter Island, where we'll uncover the secrets the island holds. There'll be cannibals, big head statues, a cave, lots of stuff. Just a lot of stuff. So hop on into our time machine and put your drink in the cup holder and let's get to it. The heads. You can't mention Easter Island without the heads, which actually aren't just heads. They're like whole ass bodies, not ass bodies. Their bodies are just regular bodies, but you know what I mean. The heads, or moai as they're called, have drawn people to the island for hundreds of years. So for our first mystery today, we're talking about these big stone dudes. Why are they and what are they? The big two comprehension questions I ask my fourth graders. There will be a quiz at the end of this episode, so you better pay attention. (laughs) So in order to get into the topic, we'll really have to start off with that awful name, Easter Island. It's not what the native people actually call it. The Dutch were the first Western peeps to sail over to the island and and write about it, and the island was known as Rapa Nui. Before, the Dutch named it Land, which means Easter Island in Dutch because they, very heavy air quotes, found the island on Easter in 1722. So from this point on, we're not going to call Easter Island Easter Island. We're going to call it Rapa Nui. So when the Dutch came to Rapa Nui, they were immediately greeted by humongous, which is the technical word, statues of angular heads. They were understandably shocked and their flappers were thoroughly gasted at the size of the heads compared to the size of the indigenous population. There were only a few thousand Rapa Nui people on the island in 1722. So how could just a few thousand people make these enormous statues? Wild speculation began and ridiculous theories started popping out of nowhere. From things like the Rapa Nui people being driven to madness and the brink of extinction at trying to build these heads, to otherworldly beings, helping them create and transport the stone. All of which are just silly and not true. And side note, it makes me so mad when people are like, it was aliens, we couldn't have done it, humans couldn't have made this. Um, excuse me, humans are pretty freaking uh, imaginative and really neat when they want to be, and they can do whatever they want without the help of no stinking aliens. Thank you very much. 
I digress. The Dutch had no idea how the statues could have been made by such few people, which just goes to show the lack of imagination on the Dutch's part. Okay, but we totally know how they were created. Now, the Moai are one solid piece of volcanic rock called tuff, which is super soft and easy to carve into. And can we just take a moment to appreciate the irony of the rock being called tuff, <laughs> but actually being really soft? Ugh, I love the world. Words are so silly. Because the stone wasn't super tough and there was a lot of it, it didn't take a ton of people to create the statues. The moai would be carved while the stone slab was lying down, and then it would be propped up later. And I don't know if you knew this, because I didn't know this for a long time, but the heads are not just heads. They are full-on bodies attached to the heads. Some of them even have hats. <laughs> they were just buried due to erosion and volcanic ash and whatnot, so they have full-on bodies. Bananas. After the carving was done, the moai were moved, but we're not actually 100% sure as to how they got moved. There are written mythological accounts from the folklore of the Rapa Nui people saying that the statues walked as if by magic, which has been interpreted in many ways. One was that they were kind of rocked back and forth and moved that way, which seemed like they were walking. If you looked at it, they definitely look like they're walking. And this theory was tested by a team of researchers led by Terry Hunt and Carl Lippo. And it totally worked. They built the replica and made it actually walk. But there are other theories about them being pulled by a sled and rolled using logs, all of which are totally plausible. But we just don't know 100% for sure. And in whatever way they were moved, none of these hypotheses require an outrageous number of people to create and move the stone statues like it did the pyramids or something like that so a relatively small population could totally manage it no problem as for the purpose of the moai a lot of findings have come out of the research done by the easter island statue project which was founded by joanne van tilburg and native Rapa Nui artist christian aravalo pacarati before the project, it was assumed that the statues were only religious statues created to honor ancestors and or chiefs that had passed away. This is totally true, but they were also central to the fertility practices of the island. Their presence was believed to stimulate the agricultural fertility of the island, which was really important because if the crops didn't grow, they would be in trouble. T-R-O-U-B-L-E because the island is super de duperty isolated. Protection was also one of their functions. Almost all of the statues are facing inward to protect the people on the island. Literally having one's ancestors watch over you was like one of the purposes. But there were also seven statues that face to the sea to protect fishermen and sailors, as well as keeping an eye out for unfriendly foes. But this information took years to come out. In 2013, the Easter Island Statue Project was the first legal dig of the island since 1955. Before the excavation in the 1950s, colonizing countries would just come on up to the island and start digging without permission from, you know, the people who were living there, they didn't ask. They, they just didn't ask. 
and they would throw out wild speculations that had no ground in science. And if you listen to the Viking women episode, it was very much that kind of archaeology. Like the Viking women example, men had thick bones and women had thin bones, that kind of bullshit from sexist and also racist archaeologists back in the Dizay. And because they just couldn't possibly imagine how the Moai were built and moved with only a few thousand people, wild speculations flew and stuck around for a few hundred years. Our next mystery brings us to the Cannibal Cave, a mystery created by an unfortunate name translation and wild rumors. Wild rumors is like the theme of this episode. Well, what are you talking about, TK? Cannibals on Rapa Nui? Give me a break. Dear what I know. I know you're telling me. So let's get into it. One of the many historical sites of Rapa Nui is the cave called Anakai Tangata. Ana meaning cave, Tangata meaning man. Simple enough, right? But here's where it gets a little weird. Kai, which incidentally is my middle name, mm, it's the K and TK, has several possible translations. The most common one is eat. So the little tra- the little the literal translation would be the cave where men are eaten, aka cannibalism. But Kai also means to gather or to tell, making the other possible translation the cave where men tell or the cave where men gather. And I am sure you are well aware that the writers of history back in the day, and sometimes now, tended to not be the fairest or most reasonable or the kindest people in the world. And because of that, when it came to indigenous populations, the worst was almost always assumed. And henceforth, the cave was known as a cannibal cave. But for the sake of honest storytelling, I do have to let you know that there is one oral tradition which was written down by the people actively trying to colonize the island uh, that includes human sacrifice to an annual religious competition. But a few things on that. Number one, if it did happen, murder does not equal eating the sacrifice. And two, there has been no evidence on the entire island that would suggest anything close to human sacrifice, let alone cannibalism. That kind of stuff leaves marks on bones. I don't know what kind of marks, but marks. They're they're there. We can tell. I mean, we, as in the the academic we, not me personally. (laughs) And you know that the cherry on top of this whole cannibal cave thing is the inside of the cave is full of beautiful paintings of birds and the sea and ships. I'll, I'll put pictures up of them on the Instagram. The other defining feature of the cave is its incredible size and acoustic properties. If you stand at the back of the cave, which is pretty wonderfully lit, your voice can be heard clearly at the front of the cave, making it an ideal place to meet and gather and tell people things. Mm-hmm. So why did we just ignore all of those things? Why did we jump immediately to cannibalism? Some archaeologists also believe boats were built there. But but no, 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 no. Let's go with the theory. The translation that's only backed up by 
a single oral tradition written down by people not of that culture and actually trying to colonize the island. Good plan. Good plan. Thankfully, that myth is being squashed as more research is being done and more people are traveling to Rapa Nui. And now this cave is known more for its incredible art than for this lie of cannibalism. So, dear one, our last section was a bit shorter because in this section, I've got quite a lot to say. There are two myths about Rapa Nui that I saved for last. Number one, there were two tribes on the island, the Long Ears and the Short Ears. And number two, the Rapa Nui people became so obsessed with building the Moai that they destroyed the island and in the process, destroyed themselves. Well, spoiler alert, both of those things are untrue. But let's explore the myths a bit more. Remember those people who so creatively named the island Easter Island? Well, these people were not only real bad at naming islands, they were also just kind of like terrible people. The expedition was led by Jacob Rogivine, Rogivine, and he was trying to find some mythical continent or whatever. And they didn't immediately go to the island when they found it, air quotes, but waited for a few days before sending a landing party. And when they finally did, they royally screwed it up and accidentally killed 12 Rapa Nui. But the Rapa Nui didn't retaliate. Instead, they brought the hungry sailors a ton of food and chickens, which the Dutch gladly took. The Rapidui were more interested in the Dutch's hats than they were anything else, so they obviously weren't starving. The Dutch stayed for about a week and then left, and that opened the door to other European countries, and they just started coming in. The population was in the three to four thousands ish in 1722, and the Dutch and subsequent colonizers were really confused as to how the Rapa Nui could build such amazing statues with such few people, which we already talked about. As more countries came to Rapa Nui, the people became more and more hostile toward European colonizers. The last straws were in 1859 and 1861, when ships from Peru came in search of free labor. They kidnapped hundreds of people from the island each time, and in the end, they took nearly half the population of the island, and forced them into enslaved labor. The hostility of the Rapa Nui fueled some of the rumors as to why the population was so small. Europe just chalked them up to being another savage group that just killed each other, and that's why their population was so small in 1722. It surely must have been bigger before, and it was. But the depopulation didn't happen as a result of the Rapa Nui people killing each other. Another thing that the colonizers reported, in addition to the small population, was the obvious lack of trees and deforestation on the island. Somehow, people just assumed that the Rapa Nui were driven crazy to create the Moai and cut down a bunch of trees to complete their obsessive task, which resulted in ecocide, meaning the self-destruction of one's own ecosystem. When this happened, food got scarce, 
and the people began fighting for food and resources and started killing each other. That's what people believed. But this dear one, as you already know, is far, far from the truth. But we would have to wait a few hundred years for the truth to come out. This was the prevailing theory well into the 2010s, with Jared Diamond's best-selling book, Collapse, really solidifying it into the minds of not just scholars, but the general public as well. TK, okay, the suspense is killing me. Tell me, what happened? What really happened? Oh, my delicious donut. Are you ready for a wild tale? So, we must start at the beginning. A group of Polynesians came to the island around A.D. 12,000. They found this island that was full of stones and literally a ton of trees, like 16 million trees, just an absolute ton of trees. And this seemed like a good place, as any, to settle. So they were like, all right, let's go. So they soon found out that the soil was garbage. (laughs) They couldn't do anything. Soon they MacGyvered up some badass farming techniques, and they did some slash-and-burn farming and cut down a bunch of trees, but they also spread rocks all around and scienced the shit out of the place. I don't know how it works, but the rocks did something with the sea air that made the soil more fertile. I have no idea how it happens. I'll leave the NPR article in the show notes that explains the science. But their rock gardens were so successful that the Rapa Nui were able to comfortably sustain a population the size of modern-day New Zealand. They made that much food. They turned this island full of trees and really shitty soil into a paradise. And scientists say that Rapa Nui skeletons from that time show less malnutrition than people in Europe. So what happened to the trees if the Rapa Nui didn't cut them all down? Rats, dear one. Polynesian freaking rats. They came over on the boats of the first Polynesians to land on Rapa Nui and had no enemies and a ton of trees that these little buggers absolutely loved. They loved palms. They ate the crap out of some palms and they multiplied. According to an article by the Washington Post, in laboratory settings, Polynesian rat populations can double in 47 days. Throw a breeding pair into an island with no predators and abundant food? The math results suggest if the animals multiplied as they did in Hawaii, they would quickly have housed between two and three million Polynesian rats on the island. And surprise, surprise, tree seeds and tree sprouts are among their favorite foods. So of course, humans cleared out some of the forest, but the real damage was made by the rats that prevented new growth. The millions of rats that just went to town on the Orgisborg Smorgasborg that were the trees and seeds of Rapa Nui. And as the trees died, so did 20 other forest plants, six land birds, and several seabirds, which were all food sources for the Rapa Nui. But they didn't let the deforestation of the island deter them. 
with no wood to make boats and fewer food sources, the people just started eating the rats. And the plants that were still viable, they ate. And still, no one went hungry. So how did the population shrink so much if they were making do with the rats and the plants? Well, evidence shows that it was STDs from visiting Europeans pre-1722. But even as their population and food dwindled, the Rapa Nui didn't go anywhere. And they are still very much here and make up over half the Polynesian population today. Many still live on the island, and there is a national effort by the Rapa Nui and the Chilean government to preserve the culture and traditions of the Rapa Nui people. And now you know the true story of Rapa Nui. We have come to our final thought, my friend, and I have some beef with the director, Kevin Reynolds. Okay? Kevin, if you're listening, which I know you are, we, we gotta talk. We gotta talk, okay? Because during my research, I was so delighted to find that there was a movie made in 1994 called Rapa Nui. I was elated, thinking that I was gonna get a super cool historical fiction look into the lives of the Rapa Nui people. But boy, howdy, was I wrong, Kevin. Ever so wrong. Honestly, I did it to myself because my first clue should have been that the movie was made in the early 90s. You know how early 90s movies are. And I knew it wasn't going to be 100% historically accurate. I was going to be happy with like 50%, 40 even. But I wasn't expecting this level of shenaniganry. The whole thing was based on the long ear, short ear clan myth with the long ears being like the superior clan and the short ears being like the lower clan that were enslaved-ish by the long ears and also the myth of them being obsessed with the Moai to the point of extinction was also rampant in the movie. And there was also a Romeo-Juliet thing between the two clans, the long ears and the short ears. But the one thing that they did get kind of right was the Birdman competition that they put on every year. But that wasn't even quite right at all. The whole thing was just a straight-up cringe fest. Straight-up cringe fest. Absolute 90s mess. <laughs> so if you want to watch a cringe fest, might I recommend the Rapa Nui movie. And Kevin, Kevin Reynolds, if you're out there, Kev, remake the movie, please. Remake the movie with the current information that we have now. It'll be so much better. Trust me. Give me a call. I'll be your historian on site for the movie. All right. Bye, Kevin. Well, that's all we have today, dear one. Thank you so much for joining me in this episode. And thank you so much for your patience with how late this episode was released. These last two weeks have been trying, to say the least. Um, But I'm really happy to finally be putting out an episode. Honestly, Talking to you, preparing everything to make the episode is really the highlight of my week. And I just want to say thank you so much for your support and your kindness that I received, especially on Instagram. And if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can write a rating or review. You could join Patreon, sponsor a cup of coffee to keep me caffeinated while I do research, or just 
send me a message letting me know what you thought of this episode. And if you'd like to send me a voice message, you can head to the link in my bio and send me a voicemail. I would absolutely love to hear from you. As for Patreon, like I briefly mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I've got some stuff in the works for some extra content over there. So be on the lookout for that in the next month or so. I am toying with the idea of some sleepy history to help you fall asleep. And by toying with, I mean I have written a few scripts already and I'm really excited to do it. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give you some more details soon. So until next time, take care of yourself. Give yourself a big hug from me to you. Do something that makes you happy. And of course, drink your water. And I'll see you next week when we talk about a vastly different topic, the history of serial killer profiling. Okay, bye. Why is there a metronome right now? Okay. <laughs>